All right. Hopefully everybody enjoyed part one of uh, my second Ask Me Anything dialogue, I guess you could call it. And like I said, you know, this one's different. So some of the questions are answered in the context of what I'm trying to describe. And I have to go into some details because it's getting more and more difficult for me to answer questions without that underlying framework of how the body works. And if I don't explain that, which unfortunately nobody has really done a good job of or even attempted before, if I don't explain that, I can't answer some of these questions. And it also, I think, ties together how so many things that we talk about, people make recommendations, they're all actually concern the exact same mechanisms. So it, it makes it much easier for us to, A, figure out what's going on with these drugs and not only what's going on, but not just, well, they did this study and they found this. It's like, okay, well, now we know how it works. So these are what we should expect. And it turns out in this framework, all the studies just continually confirm that this framework is correct. So it makes it really nice. We can know a lot of information before it's even been studied. And it makes it possible to recommend studies to do instead of just this scattershot, well, let's see what's going on. Which for us is a huge, 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 huge advantage. And in this part two, I'm going to talk about uh, cannabis and cannabinoids uh, specifically, you know, THC and then the cannabinoids that do not have the psychotropic effects of, of, uh, of THC. And in order to talk about those, that's the whole first hour kind of laid the groundwork for that. In the beginning of this, I'm going to talk just a little bit about brain health, glycogen or brain glycogen and exercise and explain why exercise makes you smarter because that will also help us to evaluate the effects of Mary Jane. I don't even know all the street names for it because I've, I've never actually done it before. I Technically, I've never done a recreational drug in my life. And that's mostly just by choice and... I just really have no interest. I really enjoy the level at which my mental faculties work, and I tend not to play with that too much. So, and this this is going to be brief, but it builds on part one. So in exercise, obviously, you know, especially if you train heavy, and this is important, and actually basically all inner exercise for all genders will have this effect on the brain. And the way exercise affects glycogen stores actually differs wildly based on age and gender. So it's, it's good. This can be a general conversation because when you exercise, so your brain stores glycogen in what's called astrocytes, which are brain cells that actually surround neurons and they can store glycogen and they can supply glycogen to neurons in times of metabolic stress, a lot of energy use. And when you exercise, you, you actually use up a lot of brain glycogen. 
And this this has been one of the things that's been proposed as to why we feel fatigue when we exercise. And, and that in itself is a difficult question. We still don't actually know. There's several mechanisms that could be responsible for it. One of those is, is not lactic acid buildup. Actually, our understanding, and this conversation is going to touch on that, our understanding of lactate production and oxidation is so radically different over the last 20 years to even talk about it as a limiting factor or, you know, I have too much lactic acid that's built up. That's what made me go to exhaustion. Those things are all false. They're demonstrably false at this point. It turns out lactate is used to continue exercise as ATP demand can can no longer be met in the traditional ways. And, w- and we talked about that a little bit. And it's because most of us being on a carbohydrate-based diet, well, most people on a carbohydrate-based diet, they actually saturate the mitochondria's ability to absorb glucose, essentially glucose to pyruvate and then in th- into the mitochondria. And once that's saturated, pyruvate actually then starts to turn into lactate and there's some there's some ATP generation there, so you're getting some ATP generation. But lactate can then enter into the mitochondria to be oxidized, and and it and it completely circumvents the normal pyruvate pathway that has to that has to bring fuel into the mitochondria. It completely bypasses that through what are called monocarboxylate transporters, MCTs, which is going to get confusing here in a minute because I'm also going to talk about medium-chain triglycerides to answer those questions. But so lactate gets transported into the mitochondria through these MC transporters. I'll shorten it that way to avoid confusion. So these MC transporters take lactate and bring it directly into the mitochondria and it can be oxidized. And this is what helps extend our ability to do high, high-end high exercise. It, lactate buildup is not actually stopping or hindering our performance. It's actually allowing us to prolong it. Even to the fact that there are lactate shuttles that if the cell starts to build up a lot of lactate, it actually exports it from the cell and it can be imported into surrounding cells so they can use it for fuel as well. So lactate is incredibly important fuel system in the body that's been misunderstood and overlooked for decades. And we're finally starting to understand it. And that's why it's it's important not to make too many conjectures about things, even if they, you know, maybe sound plausible, because there's still a lot of pieces we don't know. And we're at the point in history where we know a ton of of information. We know enough information for a basic framework to then start directing our research toward the deeper understanding that's missing, which every is less and less every day. So let's go back to this. When you're exercising, pyruvate comes into the cell. Uh, when that's saturated, it gets turned into lactate, and then lactate is just sucked right into the mitochondria and can be oxidized, and energy production continues. Now, one thing that happens when you exercise, one reason your muscles are more effective at getting fuel into the cell is even if you're on 
a carbohydrate-based diet, this increase in MC transporters, they can also import some short, well, medium-chain fatty acids like medium-chain triglycerides, MCT oil, that we so often include into the diet. So when you exercise, you're upregulating the system. You get more MC transporter content in mitochondria, and then it can absorb more lactate to produce energy longer. And if you're consuming medium-chain triglycerides, those can actually bypass the normal fatty acid transport system and also come directly into the mitochondria. So that's why MCTs can very quickly raise, say, ketone levels because they can saturate the system and then they end up in the liver. They can penetrate mitochondria and the cells and become ketones rather rapidly. Now, that's one reason, and we're going to stop here and comment on why I said I'm suspicious that MCT oil, medium-chain triglyceride oil, could cause health problems. And there's some evidence for that. It's not highly studied. But one of the reasons is if you're on a carbohydrate-based diet and you ingest MCTs, they absorb quickly and there's nothing to prevent them from getting into the mitochondria, unless the mitochondria are very sick, of course. So... As they're absorbed into the mitochondria, you now have competing fuel sources. You have the pyruvate, which is glucose-based, coming into the mitochondria, uh, which is a driver for energy production. And then you have MCTs, now, which are now pleasant, which are now driving energy production or trying to. And for if you're not in a state of exercise or energy uh, immediate energy deficit, so almost oxygen deficit and exercising, driving that much energy through the mitochondria like we talked about before is incredibly inefficient to the point that it builds up a lot of bad end end products like these superoxides and things like that and it starts damaging the mitochondria so if you are on a carbohydrate based diet or you're ingesting mcts with carbohydrates you there is a very high chance very high chance that you're damaging your mitochondria so and i said that that on uh, the previous ask me anything session in that four hours of content i talked about this potential damage that mct could do so it's really simple if you're not on a carbohydrate based diet or you're having mcts in a long stretch of day where you're not ingesting carbohydrates say carb backloading, so if you have MCTs in the morning or on the carb night diet most of the week, you could include MCT oil. In those situations, there is no damage being done. In those situations, as the MCT enters the mitochondria, it comes into the same pathway that fatty acids do, and it all self-regulates. Under those circumstances, and again, the, the research here is really is very light, but it does support these conclusions. And it does support the mechanisms that we do understand in the mitochondria. So all of this is in alignment. So if you're on carbonite or carb backloading and you're having MCT oil in the morning, don't worry about it. it. 
it is not going to affect you in any way whatsoever in a negative capacity. If anything, it's only going to be in a positive capacity because it will keep the MC transporter content high in the mitochondria. And this is always good. Actually, there's, as we should expect, there's a lot of correlation between when mitochondria become sick, one of the symptoms of their sickness is a lowering of this MC transporter content in the mitochondria. So MCTs are going to be healthy as long as you're not on a carb-based diet and as long as you're not ingesting them when you do ingest carbs. So on carb backloading, you wouldn't want to include MCTs at night uh, when you're eating carbohydrates. And on carb night, you wouldn't want to include them in your carb loads. So this is a, a little detail about how the cells work as we get some energy depletion in them. And this is really important because brain cells will primarily run on glucose if available, or ketones, and both of which, believe it or not, during exercise depend on these MC transporters in the mitochondria. And that's because ketones enter into the neurons and enter into the mitochondria through these MC transporters, and so does lactate. Both of these are very important, and and this is one spot where definitely the amount of MC transporters present in neuronal mitochondria is a really good sign of the health of the neurons. So, so we have that. When you exercise also in the brain, you get glycogen usage. And interestingly, a lot of that glycogen usage can come from the astrocytes, which actually will shuttle lactate into the neurons. And that's what increases the, M the MC transport content there. So as you exercise, you burn up glycogen. That glycogen is actually converted into lactate, which can be transported into neurons, and the neurons can use it for quick fuel to oxidize rapidly. This is a really important mechanism in the brain to sustain concentration and focus and even memory during exercise, during the fight or flight response. So this, this is very important. And of course, we kind of over abuse the system when we train in the gym. And that's why it's, it's being explored as a potential for why we really go through failure when we exercise, especially in resistance training. So exercise makes you smarter because it makes all of your neurons more capable of absorbing all energy sources as necessary. So it can always keep working at its peak power capacity. And we talked about in the, that in the last, last hour of this session. The you, mitochondria, you don't want them to be as efficient as possible uh, because that starts to trigger negative changes within the entire cell because they can't keep up with ATP production properly. And you don't want them to be too wasteful because then that generates a ton of waste products that then starts damaging the cell in total. So you have these two that you have to balance. And in the balance is peak power output, which normally occurs at about 50% efficiency. So you're never very efficient and you're never very wasteful. You're right in the middle. And 
this is this is called Odom's peak power principle. Actually, it's a very old concept, and he modeled everything from the Everglades, you know, swamp systems, natural systems, even cities. And he found all of the systems that were the longest lasting, that had the longest lifespan, if you want to call it that, from cities to uh, nation states to natural systems. Their longest, their longevity was based on being at peak power as long as possible. And there, there's a reason that that's true for our mitochondria as well that I'll talk about a little bit later. So let's get back to brain health and exercise. Again, it makes the mitochondria exercise depletes glycogen in the brain, which is shuttled into neurons via lactate transport. And the lactate then makes the mitochondria more healthy. So draining brain glycogen through exercise makes your neurons fire better and more effectively. And this has massive consequences for everything, you know, from memory to uh, cognitive speed to comprehension speeds, like all of this is very important. That's, that's why it's become very sad that so many schools have eliminated playtime for children in school or PE classes or these things, because those, those classes would actually improve the children's ability to perform. And unfortunately, by not by not getting that that exercise or by not draining brain glycogen levels, then you start to get some some brain issues, and later in life, that's going to translate into dementia. And that's where I talked about. And remember, dementia is different from Alzheimer's. Those are two completely different diseases that happen for two completely different reasons. And I'll talk about, I want to make a comment on Alzheimer's as well. So, brain, draining glycogen, good for the brain. Now, let's move over into THC. Uh, what is that? Uh, Tetrahydrocannabinol, cannabinol or something like that. I think is the, the full name. So THC, it's the psychoactive chemical in marijuana. And I've always been, I've always just not commented on the use of marijuana. Partly because my fear was some of the symptoms that it displays as far as the, I guess, or as it's described and as some of the chemistries described, it has effects similar to very mild uh, peyote or mescaline. And the main function, the, the main modification that mescaline does in the brain is it actually cuts off oxygen supply. It limits oxygen supply to neurons, which causes all kinds of crazy misfirings. And that's what causes people to have hallucinations and things like that during mescaline. And it's an extreme effect in mescaline. The more mild effect is, you know, the, I'm sure everybody here has either been, or everybody listening has either smoked marijuana, eaten an edible, or known people and been around people who have. And their, their mild altered state chemically 
and behaviorally mimics that. So I, my concern was always that THC in some way limited oxygen supply to neurons, which can, in neurons in particular, hypoxia, which is a lowering of oxygen level to the brain as, a cor- as opposed to anoxia, which is no oxygen. So hypoxia can actually be more damaging to neurons than sitting for a small period of time with no oxygen. And that's because neurons need to operate at that peak power point. And if there's not enough oxygen, it can't get enough energy through the mitochondria, which then causes different kinds of dysfunction and breakdown in the mitochondria. There's two places that electrons can leak in the electron transport chain. And one can be from too much energy and the other can be from too little. So we need to be in that middle state. So I always had this fear that THC might be causing damage in some way. Now, when we look and see what THC actually does and how it does it, then we can we can start to understand you know, is this something that should be done? And we can answer questions like, well, how often? What are the consequences? What are the long-term consequences? What are the short-term consequences? And can we mitigate any of these? Well, it turns out THC does interfere with oxygen absorption in neurons. And it's a very mild hypoxia. And this mild hypoxia does kind of the same thing as, say, DNP, or metformin that we talked about in the last podcast. It depletes energy rapidly in the neurons. And so you'll get an increase of the AMPK that we talked about before, the adenosine monophosphate kinase. And that's if that's all we knew, then we might just think, okay, everything's okay, don't worry about it. But since we know the mechanism of YMP why AMPK increases, which is oxygen deprivation, we can start to ask more questions. And it turns out oxygen deprivation has a secondary effect that is incredibly important, and that is activation of the PPAR gamma system, which there's a series of PPARs, uh, alpha, beta, gamma, uh, and I think it's beta, delta, they're kind of their isomers of each other. So, but the PPAR gamma is causes catabolic effects in the cell, and it's actually somewhat protective. So you get this interesting effect in neurons where THC limits oxygen supply, and we see this in brain scans. If you're on, if you're smoking, if you have THC in your system, your brain rapidly goes through its carbohydrate stores rapidly it, it depletes them very quickly now because that's done not by interfering with mitochondria metabolism or anything like that because it's done through oxygen deprivation this the neurons actually operate a system that then starts to clean out and repel and repair the neuron that's incredibly important in this scenario so even though there's inhibited oxygen into the neurons, and this, this is mild hypoxia. It's just enough to trigger on all these cleanup processes in the neurons. And one of those 
PPAR gamma is associated with autophagy and all these other catabolic processes in the neurons. So this is part of what helps them fire more effectively for longer. This is some of the neuroprotective effect. But the major neuroprotective effect that occurs is because most people who use tea, who use marijuana are often inactive and often on carbohydrate based diets and this and the marijuana actually puts their brain in a state that mimics the glycogen depletion of exercise so and it, it very closely mimics it because when you start to go to exhaustion and exercise you do have some oxygen debt as well so marijuana is a way to actually get the effects of exercise the positive effects of exercise in the brain and for that reason i find it amazingly intriguing and like i said the route that it does it is really just like exercise it's it's literally exercise for the brain in an edible brownie to me that's that's phenomenal and we wouldn't be able to say this if we didn't understand all the interplay going on here so whenever you have thc in your system like i said your brain is blowing through glycogen stores very quickly it's being converted into lactate and the lactate shuttling in the mitochondria then increases those mc transporters that we were talking about which increases the health of the entire neuron cell by increasing those transporters in the mitochondria this is really important stuff these are the reasons that smoking marijuana has neuronal protective effects and could could extend the usable lifetime of neurons as well so thc actually has significant promise for brain health like significant and at this point that would be impossible to disregard now where it does fall flat is for memory formation memory formation is highly dependent on glycogen levels in the brain and if you've ever noticed any of you who train very hard immediately after a workout you probably feel a little mentally dull and you're not processing things as well and you might if important information comes up in that time period you might not remember it so well and then you usually have some sort of post-workout shake and then you start to feel better well it's because you're replenishing glycogen stores pretty rapidly and it's this it's this glycogen deprivation in the brain that also does something else very important which is it depletes dopamine levels so this and as dopamine levels are depleted you get a release of serotonin so this is why cognitively you slow down you feel good you have that just kind of chilled vibe about you because of the serotonin increase and also why you're not processing things so well because dopamine has been depleted as well in this process. So we have a lot of stuff going on with THC. Now, the good news is, at least for the memory effects, there's things we there's things that you can do to mitigate that. And one of those is taking, a, I talked about racetams in the first four-hour session, is taking a particular racetam called paracetam. It actually helps to 
replenish and preserve glycogen levels in the brain to a certain extent, but it quickly replenishes dopamine levels. So you can actually get rid or mitigate most of the downside of THC and get the upside. Now, with every upside, with every drug, there are drawbacks. And doing, doing marijuana too often could actually leave the neurons in a hypoxic state long enough that the degradation goes too far and you could get some neuronal damage. Now, that would be, I mean, if you're the type of person that has to wake and bake and you just cannot possibly function without doing that and you're finding yourself needing it several times through the day, you are not doing your brain any favors. You probably, you could potentially have dementia issues later in life. So THC used on a somewhat regular basis, and I I can't believe I'm saying this because I'm usually anti- um, anti-recreational drugs for one reason or another. Uh, I, not judgmentally, I just, you know, I would never consciously recommend them. But in this case, THC really does have some important brain health attributes. And the downsides, assuming you're using it periodically, uh, you know, few times a month, whatever, a couple times a week probably is, is also okay. You can mitigate those effects. And all it takes is paracetam. It's not technically allowed to be sold for human consumption, but there are tons of websites in the United States that will sell it uh, for it. I mean, it comes in capsules, so it's clearly marketed for human consumption. And something else that could help could help the the effects aren't as strong but also ginkgo biloba so taking ginkgo biloba when you're having your party sessions can also help to mitigate these effects paracetam however is by far the superior agent to mitigate these effects so to make it make it really simple, I mean, the simple takeaway is THC done periodically can have massive brain health effects uh, for brain longevity, neuronal longevity, neuronal firing capacity, um, neuronal energy metabolism, and the downside, which is potential difficulty in remembering and memory formation, can be mitigated with paracetam so so there's your takeaway if people are telling you that it's messing up your brain or whatever if you're doing it every day several times a day they're probably right it is messing up your brain if you're doing it one once a week once a month somewhere you know in those ranges maybe a couple times a week then you're you are getting neuroprotective effects that will have lifelong consequences positive lifelong consequences the the downside is a lifelong consequence as well don't think you well i'm just going to stop smoking pot and everything will be fine that's that's not the case the the damage has potentially been done uh so the those periodic sessions are incredibly therapeutic uh very important and that mechanism of the decrease in oxygen is is also what might play a role in preventing cancer cells from spreading. And I haven't touched on cancer. And anytime if you decrease oxygen supply, you would expect cancer not to spread. 
there's many reasons for that. And it's not because the cancer cells can't replicate fast enough. It has to do with it prevents them from creating signals that then tip over neighboring cells into a cancer state. Cancer, everything you've probably ever heard or learned about cancer is also not the complete picture. It's, it's a small part of the picture. And the complete picture is, I mean, partly, I, I know this is a, a weird word to use, but it's exciting because it gives us insights into why we can't cure cancer, why that almost never happens, and also how we could prevent 90% of cancers from ever happening. I mean, we could wipe them out. They would never exist. Um, so, so it's very exciting from that, that point of view. So let's get back to smoking some dope and positive brain effects. I, I hope all that information is very useful. And, and now, of course, a big market, and I'm always concerned when there's a huge marketing push around something with little research, like cannabinoids, which attach to certain cannabinoid receptors in the body that are not exclusive to the brain. So THC works primarily through its attachment of the CBD1. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Is that right? Or just CB cannabinoid? receptors whatever of one and there's a maybe it's cd uh and then there there's a one and a two that we we know and we isolated and thc works primarily through one which is located in primarily the brain and then two is distributed throughout the the body and thc can activate it as well but cannabinoids only activate i'm just going to call it cbd2 only activate the second receptor so that's why they don't have the neurological effect of thc and the the second receptor does not seem to interfere with oxygen supply so this is a very big difference between these two but whatever however the the allosteric manipulation is going on for alteration of the cellular metabolism, it has an effect like metformin in that it raises AMP levels. And we see if you take cannabinoids, you get an increase in lactate levels. So that means you're getting, you're blowing through glycogen stores a little more rapidly. And by raising AMPK, which which is essentially what it does, then you are turning off anabolic processes in the cell and you're turning on the catabolic processes and these processes are cleaning up the cell and they're making their healthier and when you go when cells go catabolic let's say they're in a very damaged state so mitochondria are really sick which then makes the cell really sick and this is where the cells start to produce the inflammatory cytokines now they can only do that if when they're in an anabolic state. And this is one reason why carbohydrate diets keep fueling this inflammation because they keep throwing the cells constantly into the anabolic state. And the cells are already sick. They're getting sicker. So they're producing these cytokines, which then spread out and make other cells sicker as well. This is what's known as the paracrine system when cells talk to other cells. Now, with AM, AMPK increased, it throws the cell, like I said, into a catabolic state, 
which turns off all those productions. That's why cannabinoid THC and uh, cannabinoids are so good for inflammation because both of them act through different mechanisms to throw cells in the body into a catabolic or cleanup state. And this reduces inflammation throughout the body. Now, as far as downsides, like I said, it's not exactly clear the mechanism of how cannabinoids affect AMPK increase. But one thing we do know is it does not enter into the mitochondria and it does not interfere with mitochondria energetics. So we're not seeing this really low level situation that where we would expect other potential problems. And since it, it can't affect things at such a, a fundamental level as the mitochondria, then we, we can also assume that it's not going to help with diabetes, say insulin production, things like that, which at the moment it doesn't appear that it does. So it's, it's, a, it's a safe way to potentially clean up the cells periodically. Now, again, keep in mind, whenever you do these things like metformin or dinitrophenol or THC or cannabinoids, you're, you're turning on catabolic processes, which are good for cells, but you're shutting off all the anabolic processes, including mitochondrial biogenesis. And this has pluses and minuses. And one of the minuses is you're not going to mobilize new satellite cells with brand new fresh mitochondrial DNA in them. And that is the only way to get new healthy mitochondria. So most of the DNA damage that your cells suffer is not nuclear DNA. All these mutations and claims of how cancer forms, it's not actually deviations in the nuclear DNA. It's deviations in the mitochondrial DNA. And this is really important because as the mito- if the mitochondria in your cell are sick and you start becoming more active and mitochondria then split the fission to create more mitochondria, the new mitochondria are sick. Once mitochondria are sick in a cell, they're all sick at the same level. Like no amount of mitochondrial biogenesis in that case is going to make them healthier. You can make them as healthy as possible, but they all will carry around that DNA damage, the mitochondrial DNA damage. Now, the only way to circumvent that is to mobilize new satellite cells with which will differentiate into new cells. And satellite cells contain the original mitochondrial DNA map. So when they differentiate and they become functional cells, they have brand new undamaged mitochondrial DNA. That means they're functioning at the height of their capacity. So it's important not to make the mistake of going for longevity when what that means most of the time, like in every way that everybody out there is talking about longevity, they're talking about as sick as you are living as long as possible at that sickness. So yes, it will increase your lifespan, but it's not giving you the maximum possible lifespan and it's not giving you the maximum possible 
life capacity, which is just your ability to live freely for as long as possible. You have damage in all of these, whether it's fasting or hardcore ketogenic diets or, well, the carnivore diet does it or taking metformin. The only thing those do is they freeze in your your disease state and they allow you to live as long as possible in that disease state. And this is a major problem with these recommendations. And we're seeing this in all kinds of animal studies. You know, if you start fasting animals when they're in middle age and already gotten somewhat sick, well, you you extend their lifespan a little bit, not much. If you start it when they're newborn pups, then you extend their lifespan as much as possible, but they're also not as robust as their peers were in the middle of their life. And that's because you've shut off their capacity to fully adapt to the world because their cells can't, can't, well, evolve's not the right word, but they can't update themselves and become better in the process. You've turned all that off. So you've frozen them in a healthy state, but you've also limited the capacity of the animal. All of this pans out. All of the research falls under this rubric. All of it. You can judge all of the research that's out there. And I haven't... Have I? No, I haven't seen any research that you could use to refute this model at the moment. Like, everything fits within it. So keep that in mind. That And that answers... That's help helps to answer one question... I had, and I don't have the questions up, unfortunately. It'll be listed in the, the details of this. One question was, okay, well, glycogen is really important for mobilizing new cells and whatever. Well, do we really need to ingest carbohydrates? Won't glycogen levels build back up? It's not glycogen levels that are important. It's the turnover of glucose in the cell. So yes, you can be on a ketogenic diet, and there's tons of studies you you will slowly start to recompensate glycogen stores in the muscle. It's, it's a slow process, but you can get up to about 40, somewhere between 40 and 60% of the capacity before the ketogenic diet. The problem is those are frozen. You're, you are not utilizing those. There is no turnover. And without any turnover, there are no growth triggers. This is incredibly important you have to introduce carbohydrates in some way in some structured way if you're looking to make your body more healthy and the way you introduce them the way you structure that it's completely based on your lifestyle that's it how and well not just your lifestyle how old you are your gender a lot of things actually come into play in that scenario but it's there's a set of equations that make it easy on paper to understand and figure out and make it even easier in a software system. So you have to have glycogen turnover, glucose flux through the cells on a regular basis because that's what triggers these growths. This growth and part of that growth triggering is actually the damage that the carbohydrates periodically do. They, They cause high level like superoxide production and superoxide production periodically triggers tons of repair and growth you can't just get rid of the signal and expect everything to be great it doesn't work that way and that's what all these other methods are trying to accomplish now what can be even more 
dangerous is if you're not using your glycogen stores to their fullest, and this, this really affects women and older men because in both of those groups, they do not mobilize glycogen levels nearly, nearly as much as, say, young males, which, is, which a lot of studies and a lot of people are used to dealing with. It, you just don't. And in those situations, so it, let's say you're doing intermittent fasting and you're going this long period where the cells are trying to utilize fat for fuel, which they might be damaged in that process, and then all of a sudden you throw in a ton of carbohydrates and, that's, and you start eating those the rest of the day, or you eat those for a day long after being on a long fast, you're, you're not doing your body any favors. That continuous inflow of carbohydrates without the right mobilization is just damaging the mitochondria. Um, inter- intermittent fasting is kind of a bastard mix of riding a fine line between trying to keep the damage at bay while doing a little bit more damage and seeing how long you can last under those scenarios. Um, now, now that, that could easily work if it's done from day one. The day you come out of the womb, if you're in an intermittent fasting state, then yeah, your mitochondria will suffer much less damage throughout life than somebody who's not but there's much better ways to live all every single one of the effects and this was in my in carb night that i wrote back in 2005 all of this data was available to show that all of the positive effects of fasting of intermittent fasting things like that were all exactly achievable with a ketogenic diet. So there's absolutely no reason to be fasting unless you just can't give up carbohydrates at all and you want to really limit your feeding window to a period of time where you're always just doing the minimum amount of damage possible. Now, that's also why we see, you know, when intermittent fasting was big, people got got really lean, which of course, you can do in that scenario and you can make cells healthier in the process, but they couldn't gain any muscle. And that's exactly why we we turn they turn all their cells into a catabolic state, which is good for the health of the cells, but it shuts off all growth. And that's why to date we still haven't seen any ketogenic studies that show muscle growth with resistance training because it's the exact same scenario if you're on a long-term ketogenic diet then you're not ever getting those growth signals. Like It just doesn't happen. It's going to be very minimal at best. And I remember uh, Dom Agostino, Dr. Dom D'Agostino, he, when he was on my podcast last time, he was talking about they were really excited. He was doing this resistance training on a ketogenic diet study with Volick, and they'd gotten the data, and they were still trying to analyze it you know, to figure out, and he kept hedging on if they had any positive effects or not. And I was, I was questioning at, at the time, I was like, you know, I just can't see much muscle growth. And I have a feeling they just dumped the study. It's never been published, never seen the data, haven't been able to get access to the data, and they never talked about it since. So I have a feeling the data was dumped because it completely goes against 
everything Volek's been doing recently, which is trying to push ketogenic diets for exercise, for health, for his bit, his uh, his health business that he that he's a part of, and that's I don't know if that's the case, but I just can't imagine why those why that study would just disappear. Maybe they had incredibly bad research methods. Maybe they decided all of their data was bad. Or maybe they didn't like their data, so they decided that it must have been bad. And that actually that actually happens a lot in the scientific community, and it's not always nefarious. They just assume there was something wrong that they didn't catch because the results are nothing of what they expected. And in this case, the results, if they got no growth, and actually if they got some muscle loss in these individuals on a strict ketogenic diet while resistance training, that actually verifies everything I've been saying. Like, that's what they should have expected if they were truly doing their homework on what's going on with a ketogenic diet at the cellular and mitochondrial level. They should have expected those results. They should have never imagined anything else. Now, of course, questions are going to come up about, well, what about these bodybuilder health gurus or whatever who say they're training i can tell you absolutely one of two things is true if they're gaining muscle on a ketogenic diet well one of three things is true if they're gaining muscle on a on a ketogenic diet they're on some sort of anabolic hormone and again i'm not judging i have no problem with people doing performance enhancing drugs believe it or not i have no ethical problems with that unless they're lying about it for marketing purposes or competition purposes. That's where I have a problem with it. So they're either doing anabolic substances and not divulging that. They have a freakish mutation in one of their myostatin genes or both, which is completely possible, which which changes the playing field completely. Or they're lying and they are having carbohydrates periodically somehow. So one of those three, three things has to be true. Like There's no other way that the body works to accommodate significant muscle growth with resistance training if you're on a strict ketogenic diet. There is no physiological process to accommodate that. So one of those three things has to be the case in those scenarios. So I, th- I think that covers kind of the relationship with cannabinoids and THC and the body and also it touches on MCT oil and why it could be bad if you're on if you're on carbonite or carbacloating like I said and you're and you're using MCT in the morning like far away from when you're eating carbohydrates there's no issue there now if you're ingesting them as part of a carbohydrate based diet there could be problems uh, so that's something to be aware of and that should answer all of the mct questions i got uh so i don't want to scare anybody if, if you're on my protocols and you're using things appropriately you're you're not you've got no damage concerns to worry about uh thc positive side minimal negative side if used appropriately and actually i think it's a big upside to be honest not not that that would ever tempt me to do it but I think it's a big upside worth considering, especially if you do use marijuana and you're using it too frequently or you have stigmatized it somehow or maybe you use it 
once or twice a year if you're around friends and you tend to avoid them because of it it's it's actually it it has some significant potential um and uh what else did i cover covered ketogenic diets and why you you have to have carbohydrates to trigger growth and to repair cells there's there's no way around it i mean maybe in the future there there will be but it will probably be drug induced in some way and at the moment there's no physiological processes to accommodate that without using carbohydrates and i i want to touch on a little point where you know in the the first hour of this i i talked about you know scientists people who are working in the field of health mitochondria and things like that i said their ideas on health are they have no high ground and they have no no authority in the realm of making dietary recommendations for health they can't and actually at this moment i have no authority i have not publicly presented my case which is the new book and i'm not denigrating anybody's work i just want to make that clear um, because that point came up and in you know discussions where it made it sound like I was denigrating everyone. I'm not at all. They're a, they are a critical component of the scientific process. But without a clearly defined science of health and a clearly defined science of exercise, performance, and diet, nobody's recommendations can be taken more seriously than anybody else's. And Believe it or not, I, I believe that to the point of like nobody's. People could be saying crazy stuff. And since nobody has come out to create this framework, then the point at which we're at in this paradigm of trying to figure out what is healthy and what's the best diet for exercise, things like that, without the framework, you have to treat everybody's idea as worth consideration. And... If that's the case, that means nobody, I, nobody's idea has precedence. And I'm obviously trying to change that. And that brought up a second point. Like, who am I? You know, in the last hour, I talked about, you know, researchers ta- calling Alzheimer's diabetes type 3 and how ridiculous that was. It's like, who am I to, to say that? Well, one... I'm a scientist. I've always identified that way and I've always lived that way. And that it's a very specific way of thinking of where you're constantly looking at the evidence and you're constantly trying to update your worldview if you live that way. And if you're working on something, you're never fully committed because you know that more information might come along that proves you wrong or inaccurate. And that's one thing that I've had to do constantly throughout this is every idea I've ever had, I had to look for why it might be wrong. I didn't keep looking for all the little pieces that fit and said, oh, I have this nice microcosm of information that makes me look really good. I did the opposite route. So, you know, there's tons of information that makes me look good. That's what I based everything off of. Okay, what about all the other information out there that makes me look bad how do i explain that and this this ties into the the alzheimer's connection and why i feel my opinion is well not opinion 
why I feel my methodology makes what I'm saying superior to even some of the researchers. So a, a good question that came up with carbonite, especially in carb backloading, was how important is insulin? Because if you eat like if you eat a hamburger, if you eat just the beef patty, you get a pretty significant surge in insulin. And I always knew that carbohydrates were an important part of the picture, any carbohydrates, any usable carbohydrates. But I also thought insulin was an incredibly significant part of the picture as well. And so I had to start asking, you know, how important is insulin? Because everybody shifted away from the carbohydrate idea and just focused on insulin. That's why we have all these bastard uh, low glycemic diets, you know, controlling insulin instead of controlling carbohydrates, like all these things. And, you know, some of the intermittent fasting is based around the idea of controlling insulin. So I started looking for information that would confirm that insulin was a main contributor or that it wasn't. And one of the things I thought of is every person, well, not every person, but there's every person's different genetically. And actually not all insulin is the same. We make different kinds of insulin. So I make one kind of insulin, you may make another kind. And depending on the population you look at, I, I, it, it usually seems to be around the upper number of different types of insulins that we can find. They, they just have slightly different structures. Uh, is about, there's like 10, 10 different ones that we kind of know of. So my thought was, okay, where's a population that has massive obesity problems and that, that has been studied really well and they, they've probably done some of these studies to look and see what different insulins correlated with obesity. Because what you would imagine is insulins with much stronger effect for lower quantity, so ones that bind really strongly, those insulins should correlate with more obesity because they have a much stronger effect per microgram of insulin that's released or nanogram. So... And then the other, the other alleles would would create insulins that were weaker, and those people should not get as sick as fast if insulin's important, and they shouldn't get as fat as fast. Well, it turns out the Pima Indians are an amazing population that just incredible research has been done on, and so I researched them and. They actually did these studies. They went in and they, they theorized that it was insulin because they were looking at what was the difference. We talk about Pima Indians and how sick they are, but it turns out there's actually quite a bit of variety in the population, which you would expect. There's some that eat just, they have, even in communities where they have incredibly similar diets, there's a big distribution of the obesity rate. And when they went in, they found, I think, seven uh, in this population, in the Pima Indian population under study, and was, thousands of them were, were part of the research, they found nine, uh, seven, sorry, seven different types of insulin in the community. And they tested those, and, and they were scaled. There was one type of insulin that had the strongest affinity. It was the most effective insulin. It was very powerful compared to the others. And then... There was a scale all the way down to the weakest insulin. 
Now, when they correlated the insulin made by the Pima Indian and their level of obesity or sickness, there was absolutely no correlation. None. Now, if your premise is that insulin is the problem, then this information is a big problem for you. You have to explain why you couldn't predict anything based on the function of insulin. And it, so they, they did further study, and it turns out that, as you would imagine, we all make different types of adrenaline as well. Some are more effective than others, and some are very um, dysfunctional. And it turns out in this population, of, in, in Pima Indians in particular, a high percentage of them make an adrenaline that binds incredibly weakly. So it's not the insulin. The insulin's not the main driving force. It's the fact that as they become fat, it's the difference in adrenalines that doesn't allow them to get rid of that fat. And that's the huge differentiator in that population. So looking for reasons I could be wrong or looking for confirmation and then accepting that I was wrong made me start to reassess how body fat is gained, what body fat accumulation means. It made me reassess everything, which brought me around to my current framework. And I did the same thing with Alzheimer's because there's a huge, huge problem with Alzheimer's research and calling it type 3 diabetes because Alzheimer's does not correlate with diabetes state. It's a very weak correlation. You would expect it to be much, much stronger. You would expect people who get Alzheimer's younger to have gotten into a diabetic state much, much sooner, and that doesn't happen. And those correlations break down. So you have to ask, well, why? If, if it's so directly tied to insulin and it's so directly tied to carbohydrates, like why, why do we have these discrepancies? Like what's the problem? Why aren't they actually in type 2 diabetes before they go into type 3 diabetes? Like that's a small subset. You're cherry picking information if you call it type 3 diabetes. So I basically did the same thing. I'm like, okay, well, what, what's going on in Alzheimer's that's so different? And that's the amyloid beta. And then so I started to look at amyloid beta and I started to research what breaks it down and what doesn't. And it's this insulin degrading enzyme. And then that kind of put me in the path because it, it was fitting in with all my other work. So then I researched insulin degrading enzyme and there's four or five different types that we know humans make. There's a very strong one and there's a very weak one. And this one, it would be opposite because if it's very strong, it quickly can bind to and break up any chemicals that are around. You don't need as much for the positive effect. And it turns out if you are a producer of the highly affinitive insulin degrading enzyme, then you have a much lower chance of developing Alzheimer's. If you are a producer of the weak insulin degrading enzyme, you have a much, much higher chance of Alzheimer's. You don't need to become diabetic to be at risk for Alzheimer's. And actually, of all the correlative information on predicting Alzheimer's, the type of insulin degrading enzyme you have is the best predictor. So all I'm trying to do is flesh out how I approach this subject, how many different angles I approach it from, and 
hopefully that gives you confidence that I am someone at least worth considering. You know, you might not believe me. You might believe me. That's fine. But I, I just want to make the point that I am worth considering. Um, and if that doesn't help, I am s- still technically a PhD candidate in physics, which, to be honest, I feel like being in graduate school in, fin- in physics is requires a special kind of mind that you don't find outside of many other fields other than possibly mathematics, although even not then, maybe computer science at the high, higher echelon levels. And that's, and I'm not saying that in some sort of vainglorious way, like physicists, especially theoretical physicists tend to have different type of thought processes. And if you don't believe that, spend half an hour with me and you will absolutely believe it. Um, but we, we just have a different mindset of how we look at the world. And that that's very important for accumulating information and trying to move on to the next stage, which is what it's the contribution I would like to make if it's even possible. But speaking of moving on, uh, I'm a little bit over the hour mark. So that concludes hour two. I hope this was in some way useful even though I, I definitely got uh, got a little ranty or talky here at the end. All right. Look forward to part three coming up.